Okay, uh, let's make a start. John chapter 1, if you've got a Bible, page uh, 886 in our church Bibles. John chapter 1, we're starting a four-week series uh, this week uh, looking at Advent. And we've gone to maybe um, probably the least used of all the Gospels for an Advent series, John chapter 1. And in fact, in John, there is no Advent narrative. There is no narrative or kind of a typical narrative that you see in the other Gospels of Jesus coming as a baby and, and kind of the shepherds and angels and all that stuff that we, we are usually so familiar with around Christmas. What you do see in John's Gospel is some absolutely incredible truths about who it is that is coming. And my, my hope is over these next four weeks is that we start to kind of think beyond human concepts of who Jesus is and what he comes to do in his coming and as we do that we just have such a such a a richer and fuller sense of of what it means for him to come and live amongst us and die for us and raise to be uh, with our father quite often when we think about advent and we spent last night kind of breaking open the boxes and starting to put up um, a few lights elizabeth is like this so she'll start with just a couple of lights and then once she starts she can't stop so uh, lights everywhere and um, um, tangerines and nuts on the table so Christmas has started and our house Advent has started um, and, and quite often when you go to nativities or you're kind of walking through the shops and things on the telly you get this stereotypical view this picture of of Jesus kind of coming as a baby and he's there in, in, in a manger in a stable kind of wrapped in swaddling cloths and he's got the wise men coming and the shepherds coming and you get kind of tiny glimpses of maybe the truth of who Jesus is but but actually it's very subtle this morning we're going to see uh, we're going to see and hopefully just really come to believe and understand in the true sense that Jesus comes not just as a baby baby but Jesus comes as the eternal king the next four weeks we're going to look at him coming as a king and a different aspect of his kingship and this morning, just in the first three verses, we're going to see that this baby comes, yes, and, and maybe he was in a stable, maybe he was kind of wrapped in swaddling clothes, but this wasn't kind of an, an ordinary baby. This was a king who was coming. And actually, in the Gospels, it's not really explicitly clear. If you just kind of start in John chapter 1 or Matthew or Mark or Luke chapter 1, it's not really clear that Jesus comes as a king, but Jesus kind of drops hints as he goes through the Gospels, doesn't he? That he is a king. He talks a lot about the kingdom of God. And he talks about kind of just Israel's king. And actually in the whole Bible through the Old Testament, you just kind of see hints and glimpses of him being a king. It's not until you get to the end of the Gospels, though, that he really puts his kingship on display. On Palm Sunday, you see the crowds gathering and laying down palm leaves. And they they shout, Hosanna. And they shout, literally, here comes our king. And then you get this really interesting uh, conversation towards the end of Jesus' life where he is standing in front of Pilate. Pilate, who is the governor, who has responsibility and the authority to crucify Jesus. And Pilate asks Jesus to his face, are you the king? And Jesus is so winsome in his reply. He doesn't say, yes, I am. He He just almost throws it back to to Pilate and says well, well whatever you say what well, what you said there is is kind of it's kind of exposing the truth of Pilate's heart and we see that there is a, a plaque nailed above the cross king of the Jews 
there's a real sense as he comes to the end of his life that people are starting to see and understand in their hearts and with their eyes that Jesus is the king. But what kind of king is he? So the problem we have when we look at this and we think of kings is we only have earthly concepts of kings, don't we? In fact, we don't even fully know what that means because we've got a queen. So when we think about king, we maybe think of Lord of the Rings or we think of, of the crown or we think of all these kind of different things that might come to mind. But, but we need to kind of stretch ourselves a little bit and with the help of the Spirit, try and understand that actually the kingship that Jesus comes to bring is, is, is slightly like the earthly concepts that we have, but universally greater in every way. So this morning we will look a little bit about what it means for Jesus to be an eternal king. Mark's going to come and share next week from a few more verses. We're going to look at Jesus who is a king who brings light, who brings life. As we go through each one, we will get a little glimpse, a little bit more of an understanding that this king who comes is a king who is so much greater than our earthly concepts. So much greater than we get a picture of as he comes in a manger. So let's start with uh, the first three verses of John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you even just for these first few verses, how much we see of who Jesus is and what he came to do. We thank you for the deep truths which we have in front of us here. We thank you, Jesus, that that you didn't just show up 2,000 years ago, but John says that you have always been and you've been doing as well through all of eternity. We thank you that there's not anything around us that that you are not in contact with, that you don't have sovereignty over, that your hand is not able to move and position for your glory and for the good of your church. In just these three verses, we just pray for these next few moments that your Holy Spirit will guide us into truth. And as he does that, we would just have have a greater understanding than we do now of your greatness, of your majesty, of what it means for you to be a king and a king who is eternal. So help us, we pray, by your spirit, for your glory. Amen. Jesus is the eternal king. We have a lot of pictures, don't we, of Jesus kind of existing as a, and coming as, as a baby. And he just comes and, and he's kind of this cute little boy in a manger. And that is true. 2,000 years ago, he did. He came and he put on flesh and, and he was born as a baby. But we, we can't confuse Jesus coming with the beginning of Jesus. Like he literally shows up and puts on flesh 2,000 years ago. But Jesus, if we believe what these verses say, Jesus existed long before the manger. Long before we kind of see this cute little baby. And you see that in the Old Testament. You see prophecies of, of the prophets kind of looking towards Jesus coming. But even then, Jesus existed before then. What we read here in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1 is the beginning of Jesus' humanity, but not the beginning of Jesus' personhood. So his humanity begins, his fleshness begins, but the personhood of Jesus doesn't begin in John chapter 1. Jesus as a person has existed 
for all eternity. He has eternally existed. And he has eternally existed as king. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? Well, three things we're going to see briefly this morning. Firstly, that his eternality confirms his authority. Secondly, his eternality confirms his power. And thirdly, his eternality confirms his divinity, the fact that he is God. And in all of those three things, the application, the the thing that we can take away from them is if those things are true, if he has authority, if he has power, if he is divine, then we can gladly submit to him. So firstly, his eternality confirms his authority. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. And just a bit of a spoiler alert. When it says the word, that's talking about Jesus. That's really clear a few verses down there. The word there that John is talking about is Jesus. And it isn't that that he kind of comes and he puts on flesh and he becomes the word. He already is the word. Jesus has eternally existed as the word. And then he comes and puts on flesh. Paul helps us understand this in Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. He says this, by him, that's Jesus, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Paul has a sense, John has a sense, that Jesus existed before all things. He was there right at the start. Jesus was present in the beginning. He was known by God in the beginning. He doesn't just land at his birth, but even before creation, he exists. And he has a being. And it isn't just that that we see. He isn't just present Listen to this in John chapter 17, verse 5. He says, Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So it's not that Jesus exists with God the Father at the beginning, but but Jesus gives us a sense that he shares in the glory of God at the beginning as well. That is key to our understanding of Jesus being our king. He is there in the beginning. He's full of glory in the beginning. That is why he is able to speak. That is why he is able to live. That is why Jesus is able to rule with authority. That is why we should listen to what he says. Because he was right there in the beginning. That word beginning there in verse 1 is translated origin. That's what it means. In the origin was the word. In the origin was Jesus. He was right there before anything was created and we find our origin in Jesus so just to help us understand what this means for us in terms of his authority if he was there at the beginning if he is the origin of all things then that means he gets to create the conditions for how we live that means he gets to create the rules for how we live if he was the first one he gets to create kind of the, the rules of life and how we engage in life and, and receive from life in all of its fullness. So we see this in, um, I don't know whether, whether when you're at school, you kind of, you go on the playground and you would make up games. And whoever made up that game made up the rules. Like they were the first one, they were the origin of that game. So they made up the rules. Um, there's a friend of mine who, his job is, he works for, for kind of people like Tesla and people like that. And his responsibility is to work out the algorithms for the computer as you have these autonomous cars, so cars that you don't need to kind of 
drive, they think themselves. And his job is to work out the algorithm for when a car approaches something like an old lady on that side of the road and a, and a kid on that side of the road, which one the car would knock, knock over. If it can't avoid one of them, which one does the car knock over? Now that is just like, what a responsibility that is. And literally there are no kind of handbooks or, or governance out there to tell him what he has to do. He is literally making up the rules and the conditions to, to try and understand which decision the car would go for. And I've got no idea which one he landed on, but, 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 but maybe we'll find out in time. But, but he is kind of the first one. He's the origin of making this system, creating this program. So he gets to create the conditions. He gets to create the rules. In the same way, Jesus is at the origin. He is at the beginning Therefore, he is able to say with full authority what life is and what life isn't. So there are so many different worldviews out there. A kind of humanist or an atheistic view of life is the, is the um, kind of man or man's experience is the ultimate authority. So they wouldn't say that there is a supernatural agency at the origin, at the beginnings. So instead, they would say reason or experience is at the origin that's where they kind of govern what life is and how we engage and enjoy and flourish in life to all of its fullness we work on on man and and kind of man's experience now theoretically that might be a good idea but only if we can trust man's experience and man's reason to be correct but what a weight that is on our shoulders the bible in contrast says at the beginning was an origin and that origin was a person and that person is Jesus and Jesus is pure and he is true and he is good all of the time and we're going to see in a minute that he is one who is holy for mankind he is selfless he is kind and he makes the rules he creates the conditions for life Jesus' eternality confirms his authority because he was there at the beginning. That means we can gladly submit to him because he is a good king. It's interesting at the moment with the elections approaching this week, there is so much uncertainty in what is to come because we, if we're being honest, we actually can't trust any of the people fully who we're going to be voting for. But we have one who is at the beginning of all things who we know who has shown himself through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through the way he is ruling and reigning now that he is one whose authority we can trust implicitly. So submit to him. Secondly, we see Jesus' eternality confirms his power. Look at the second half of verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse three, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. John describes Jesus as the word here. That, that word, that literal word in, in Greek means logos. Now that doesn't kind of mean anything to us at all. We don't use that word at all in, in our language. But the word logos had significant meaning for, for the Greek hearers of John's gospel. So for the Greeks who would be listening to this, the word logos was actually what, what, they, the, what they kind of understood for the rational force behind reality. So they believed that there was kind of something holding everything together, but this was a non-personal kind of existence, and it was a kind of rational existence, something, not someone, something was holding all things together. And they would call this thing the Logos. 
What John is doing here is showing his Greek readers that yes, there is someone who is holding all things together. There is a, a logos in the sense, but, but this isn't just an impersonal, kind of non-personal, rational force. This is Jesus. This is the personal Jesus who is holding all things together. And he has existed for all of, all of eternity. It says here in verse 3, doesn't he, that, that Jesus made everything. In fact, he repeats it, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Three times he repeats the same thing just so that we're really clear that, the, that Jesus created, Jesus made. Everything that we see around us has, has a sense of Jesus' fingerprints on it. He had the power to create everything. And John wants us to see that there are things that are made, but Jesus is not one of those things. He is the maker there are things that are created that we see around us. But Jesus is not one of those things. He is the creator. That means that whatever comes into being, whatever happens, is truly under Jesus' control. It's not out of his control. That means that everything that we see, everything that is created that we see, was crafted, was designed by Jesus. And it's all held together by the power of his word. And you can take that from kind of two extremes. You look at the kind of macro parts of creation. You look at, you look at the, the trees and the, the, the sky and, and, and the stars and the galaxies. Jesus created all of those things. And you look on a micro level. The breath that we breathe. The cells in our body. The blood in our body. The tears that we cry. Our capacity to get angry. Our capacity to experience joy and satisfaction. All of these were created by our eternal King Jesus. Why does that matter? Well, place that kind of splendor and strength and power, place that kind of sovereign kind of majesty that God created everything that we can see. Jesus held, holds it all together. He created it by the power of his word. Place that in the perspective of a vulnerable, cold baby who was born into poverty amongst animals in a cave in Bethlehem. Think of the vastness of the act that God has undertaken in that moment when Jesus comes and puts on flesh. Jesus is leaving the side of his father to enter into a place of pain, a place of death. Is the creator becoming a creature? It was one who is eternally clothed in glory, now clothed in swaddling cloths. One who filled the heaven and the earth with his glory is now being cared by for a teenage mother. The one who made the heavens will learn to swing a hammer and a saw. The one who created the earth and all that is in it grows to experience hunger and thirst. The one who is at the beginning, the most powerful force in the universe, puts on human flesh and comes to live amongst us. Jesus' eternality confirms his power. That means we can submit to him. We could submit to him knowing that he knows us. Because he is powerful, because he created us, he knows us. In fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. That's crazy, isn't it? Like we think no one knows kind of the depths of our hearts and no one knows really what we are thinking. But that isn't what the Bible says. 
God knows us better than we know ourselves. If he was there in the beginning and the Bible says he is there at the end, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we have done and he knows what we are going to do. And the comfort in that is actually we need someone who knows us because in so many ways we are broken. We are broken. And so to know someone who knows us, who really knows us and knows what we need and knows what we need to hear and knows what we need to experience, that gives us, that gives us hope. So I wonder if you think in kind of your workplace or at home or even when you're, you're a child, if you needed help for something, who do you go to? You go to someone who, who knows better than you do. That generally in my, work, in my workplace, I would go to someone, one of the kind of older guys or older ladies who've been doing the job for kind of decades, who've done this, this task a few times over, and they would know what to do because they've done it before. They've got the experience of doing it before. In the same way, we can go to God as our creator, who has existed for all of eternity, who experienced the human existence just like us, but walked it perfectly. That means we can submit to him and trust him as our creator, the one who holds all the power in his hands. The one who knows us better than we know ourselves. So Jesus' eternality confirms his power. And lastly, Jesus' eternality confirms his divinity. It confirms that he is God. Look at the last part of, of verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is saying that the word, Jesus, was God, is God, and was with God. He was there at the beginning with God. He isn't kind of a separate person here. Now there's different kind of kind of concepts and understandings of, of how Jesus kind of fits into to God or the Godhead. Like some people would say that that at his baptism, which you read in the next chapter of John, it's at his baptism that Jesus is adopted by God. Like he's just, a, literally, he's just a man who comes and lives amongst us and God shows him special favor and adopts him. And um, There are kind of folks out there who would say that there is, there is one God and he almost has like three different modes, a, a little bit like um, you kind of hear the, the analogy of, of steam, um, water and ice. That God is kind of one being and he just kind of transitions between these three different modes. Um, you have people who come and say that Jesus was created by God divine. So he didn't exist for all eternity. Like 2,000 years ago, God created him and created him as a God. Not of the same substance, but just kind of created him out of something and made him a God. That isn't what the Bible says at all. It does say that he came and put on flesh. But he came fully God, of the same nature, of the same substance as God the Father and God the Spirit, because he has eternally existed with God the Father and God the Spirit. So they are each distinct persons. There is Jesus, who is God. There is God the Spirit, who is God. And there is God the Father, who is God. Each distinct in their personhood, but from one nature and one substance. And John, the apostle here, says it black and white, that he is God. The word was God. Jesus was God. Why does that matter for us? Why does it matter? And why do we need to know that Jesus comes as an eternal king who is God? 
Well, it matters because a few chapters on, a few years on, three years from this point, we see Jesus go to the cross. We see this baby grow into a man and this man lives a perfect life. And we see him die on a cross. And John tells us that his death isn't just kind of the death of a a normal human. Like this is a death that all of creation, all of history has been waiting for. They've needed God to come, literally God to come and die for them because of our problem with sin. Because the the right and the just penalty and 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 the trajectory of our sin is death. That's what God says. That's what God says is the payment for our sin. It's death. A man dies. No one can kind of continue in their existence. Every single one of us dies as a result of our sin. And this pattern will keep on going on and on and on because none of us are able to make amends for our sin. Because we live lives which are imperfect, lives which are corrupted. But God says all the way through scripture that that there is a way out. There is a way that we can be freed from sin. There is a way that we can be freed from death. But it requires the death of a perfect one. In the Old Testament, you see this kind of symbolism of a perfect lamb being used. A lamb that is without blemish, a, a spotless lamb, a lamb with no broken bone. And in the Passover, God, God says, take this lamb, sacrifice it, paint the blood of, of the lamb over your doorpost. And this is the 10th plague that comes over um, the, the land in Egypt. If you kind of remember um, back the story of Pharaoh and Moses. And on that night, this last plague, the, the, the angel of death will pass over the land. And it will kill every firstborn unless you paint the blood of an innocent lamb a perfect spotless lamb without blemish across your household. This is a picture of what God is going to do. He's saying there is a way out of slavery. There is a way out of sin. There is a way out of death. But it requires the death of a perfect one. And no man, no woman has ever been able to live a perfect life. Except for Jesus, who is God. Who comes and lives a perfect life. And for the first time in all of history, there is a way and there is a means for man to be freed from death. That is why it is important that Jesus comes as an eternal king who is God. Because if it is anyone else who is put up on a cross and claims that they have died for mankind, then it doesn't mean anything because we know that they are not perfect. But if it is God who dies on a cross... If Jesus, who is God, dies on the cross for us, then he can take our sin. And he can bring us freedom from death. So that we are no longer bound by it. There isn't just any baby that comes 2,000 years ago. This isn't just kind of a king who comes and steps into our space and our time and puts on flesh and bones. This is God who comes. Tempted in every way, surrounded by sin. We're able to live a perfect life so he can die the death for us. God sent God and God died for us. That means that we can submit to him. That means that we should want to submit to him. Because he is God and he is God who loved us enough to die for us. There is no other man, there is no other woman, there is no other God in this world that would extend that kind of love towards you. Someone who would know you and know the depths of your heart 
more than you know yourself. Someone who has the authority to, to put the stars into the skies where they are. Who's willing to humble himself to the point of death on the cross. To free you from your sin and your slavery to death. Jesus is the eternal king. And his eternality confirms his authority, it confirms his power, and it confirms that he truly is, was, and always will be God. So when we start Advent, literally today, as we start Advent and we get bombarded with this baby, this cute kind of crying baby in a cradle, we can see that that is true, like he did come and he did kind of lay in a baby, in in a manger. We lay there as king, as an eternal king, as a king who would come with authority, power, and divinity to love those that he came to save. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you as we remember today your coming. We thank you for this season where we're able just to reflect and stop and slow down and think back to 2,000 years ago when you came and you put on flesh and you lived amongst us. We thank you that that wasn't your beginning, that you had existed for all of eternity, that you were there at the origin, you were there before space and time, sharing in the glory of the Father and the Spirit. We thank you that you are God. You always have been God and you always will be God. We thank you that you are a God who who moves with authority and with power. We thank you that for those who who are yours, for those who love you and see you as their king, that your authority and your power does not lead us to judgment, but it leads us to peace and safety and joy and an eternal hope where we will exist under your rule and reign for all of eternity. So Jesus, give us minds and eyes and hearts that are able to think beyond human concepts of who you are and to appreciate and understand and worship you for all that you are. Fully man and truly God came to live and die for us. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. As we take this meal, we take this as an act of remembrance. So we're going to share the bread, we're going to share this wine and juice together. And as we do that, we think back, and we think back to Jesus, not as a baby, but as a man. A man who came and lived amongst us. A man who did die for us. A man who came fully God, fully man, as the king of the ages. Listen to this from from, uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy. He says, to the king of ages, this is Jesus, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is king. He is the eternal king. And as we break this bread, we remember, and just think how stunning that is, that Jesus, who is king, who has always been king for all eternity, would step down, would humble himself, would experience all the temptation that we have thrown at us day after day, walk perfectly and die for us. Jesus, who is God, would die for us. 
And this wasn't just any ordinary death. The, the death that Jesus experienced was the cruelest of deaths. This is God, remember, who humbles himself to be in shackled in chains, to being falsely accused, to, to having his beard ripped out of his face. This is God who humbled himself to, to have his back ripped open as they lashed him with, with ropes filled of nails and hooks. This is God who suffers for us. This is God who then is, is, is nailed his hands and feet to a wooden cross. This is God who was raised up, naked, humiliated in front of his mother and his friends. This is God who was spat upon. The God who who put all the stars into their place, now humbled with his hands and his feet stretched out on a cross. A God who holds all authority, all power, and is full of love for those he came to save. So as we break this bread, remember, Jesus, that as you came, you came and you humbled yourself to the point of death on the cross. Remember Jesus whose body was broken. Remember his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So we wouldn't have to sit here this morning in shame and guilt. But that we could celebrate with joy and hope in our hearts that our sin has been removed. Because Jesus died for us.